lift off of the Falcon 9. My guest today is Ewan Reed of Mission Control uh, Space Services, based out of Ottawa. Uh, welcome, Ewan, to the Space Q podcast. Hi, Mark. Uh, so, uh, Mission Control Space Services, love the name. Uh, it's a relatively new company. Uh, introduce your company and your goals, because I don't know if a lot of people out there know who you are. Sure. Uh, well, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, we, we are a new company. We were established in uh, fully incorporated in March of 2015, so we're about two and a half years old now. And while we are a new company, I don't tend to describe us as being a startup uh, because we're not the kind of company that is chasing a particular new technology and racing in terms of time to market to get that out to disrupt a particular industry. Uh, it's not like we have this new space widget that once everyone gets their hands on, everyone's going to want one and we're going to you know, make millions of dollars. There's no app way. for that. There's no app for that, right. <laughs> so we're, we're not that kind of uh, startup kind of company. We're, we're just a new company, a company that didn't exist before, and so therefore we're young and we're new. Uh, but we all uh, many of us came from background in the space industry here in Canada or abroad and decided that we wanted to form our own company, basically, uh, start something new. And in terms of what we're, we're trying to do, um, I mean, I guess our goals are that we, we want to make contributions to space exploration. We want to make you know, help facilitate Canadian contributions. Um, we really believe that there is a, an emerging nascent uh, you know, space economy, uh, a real commercial space sector. That's something that's going to uh, continue to evolve and grow and become fairly significant, I think, over the coming years. And it seemed like the timing was right to get in it, you know, ahead of that uh, curve, kind of uh, on, on the cusp of the wave as opposed to kind of catching up from behind. So it, the timing made a lot of sense. And, and to be perfectly frank, when we started, like I said, we're not a startup. We don't have this one kind of idea that we are pursuing. And it made it a little bit difficult sometimes when people would ask me, okay, well, what are you guys all about? Give me your elevator pitch. And I couldn't really do it because we didn't have one thing that we were trying to do. We we just said, well, we, we felt like it was the right time to start a space company and we all wanted to be working for a space company. So that's what we're doing. So um, I take it then that uh, so you're not a startup. So you're obviously not actively seeking venture funding or any of that those types of uh, funding mechanisms. Well, I, I guess I'd say that, that you know, we, we, we're funded through a variety of mechanisms. Uh, so we do have some equity investment. Uh, we also have some debt financing. And we are, you know, open to considering various mechanisms, avenues to support whatever our operations are at a given time. We, like we, are not, tech we are not going through the typical kind of process of, you know, Series A, Series B and things like that. And again, it's because we don't have enormous capital needs in the very near term in order to be able to achieve a particular goal or objective, which is critical to what we're trying to do, which is what most startups are like. You know, they say if, if we wait and do this in a more organic or kind of bootstrapped fashion, it's going to take us 10 years to get our product to market or to, to get to the point where we have enough market share that we're, we're able to meet our, you know, our profit margin at a certain price point, things like that. You know, we're not in that. So, so because of that, then they need to, you know, to get a lot of money right up front, spend it, and therefore, you know, do things at a certain time. And and yeah, I don't think we really fit into that category. So we haven't been out chasing VC money because, I, you know, there's just no appropriate kind of need for it right now. So there's um, no uh, there's no IPO coming. Uh, well, th again, so what I will say is that there's no you know, immediate plans for, for certain things along those lines. But we're very open to all, anything that might come in the future. And so right now I'd say we're, we're working towards basically carving out a, a, a niche uh, that, that can be our own and an area of focus, a specialty. And I would say that kind of lies at the intersection, intersection of new space, uh, autonomous vehicles, machine learning. Um, and so it's, you know, operational capabilities, um, optimization and, and kind of helping uh, planetary robotics uh, or terrestrial vehicles, you know, navigate more safely, more efficiently, things like that. And so, as we 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 kind of coalesce around this core competency, around this niche, it may turn out that we we find a product or a service that we think is something that is disruptive and that does have a 
criticality in terms of time to market. And therefore, we decide we do need a significant amount of financing beyond what we can we can get through our, our current channels. And therefore, we have to go out and chase VC money or angel investment or even an IPO to get a, you know, a big injection of capital. Uh, we're just not there yet. And I, I don't think that it's by default that, oh, you know, start a new company today, go out and ask for VC financing tomorrow. I, I think people have that perception that that's what it's like. But I, I don't think that makes makes any sense if, if that's not what you need to accomplish your goals. Yeah, not everybody goes down that road. Right. So, um, all right, uh, two years uh, since you started. Uh, tell me about your f- first project that you got uh, funding for, which I believe was your autonomous soil assessment system. So let's learn about that, and then let's get into some details of what that is and where it could go. Sure. So this is, um, it's a technology actually that was uh, defined by the the Canadian Space Agency. So they'd identified it as being one of the critical technologies um, for uh, development and enhancement uh, within the Canadian space sector. So they felt that this is something that uh, was within the scope of Canadian industry to achieve and that was useful uh, in terms of if if it was successful, the outcome would be something that would, would be useful on an upcoming mission. And fundamentally what it is, is a technology technology that would enable a future planetary rover to avoid a situation like NASA's Spirit rover got into, which was that it it got stuck in some soft sand and ultimately ended the mission. Now, that mission itself was very successful. Uh, It went much longer than its original 90-day lifetime. It lasted for years and years and covered many, many kilometers and did all sorts of great science. It surprised everybody by how well the rover actually performed and the mission, how long it lasted. Absolutely. And I mean, Opportunity, its sister spacecraft, is still still running, still doing very well. That's 13 years later. Right. And, And and there are an ongoing, you know, debates about, you know, do we stop? I mean, of course, it makes no sense to stop operating a rover when you've got it up there on Mars already. But, of course, there's no one that ever in their wildest dreams thought they should budget, you know, phase E operations costs for 13 years down the road when they launched it. Sure. So, of course, this money's got to come from somewhere. Where does it come from? So, anyway, that, that's that's a separate uh, discussion. But in terms of Spirit's mission ending, you know, I guess I hesitate to use the word prematurely, but I'll say, um, you know, in a surprise fashion kind of thing, you know, that NASA and CSA... It was bound to be wear and tear and right. wear and tear got yeah. caught. That's right. Caught well, that's the thing. I mean, it, it had a drive motor, it failed before it got stuck, and then while they were waiting to get it uh, disembedded, another drive motor died, and so they were down to four out of six, and, and they just didn't have the thrust to get out. So, you know, it, it, it was a fairly natural ending, but that said, obviously, they'd be more than happy to to, to have had that mission continue. And maybe what's more important, maybe I should be talking more about opportunity in the sense that over the course of its 13 years, there's been something like six weeks of time that opportunity has spent just kind of backtracking or replanning or getting out of sticky situations kind of like Spirit was in. And when, again, I've already talked about, you know, I've alluded to the cost of operations and these are non-trivial costs when you have operators and, and you know, infrastructure dedicated and in place to support a mission like this. And so if you can save costs associated with, you know, six weeks or even more um, by having a system that's running on board autonomously that's detecting an area of, of dangerous hazardous terrain and informing the rover and thereby you know changing the navigation path around that that area you know that's that's a compelling value proposition for for the operators of the spacecraft so, with spirit um, was there a, a did they upgrade the software over time to deal with issues that it came across and uh, if if they did or didn't um, with your service that you've developed, would that be something that would work now if you were to able to get it to the rover? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We we, we like to say that our, our ASAS, our, our autonomous soil assessment system technology is, is rover agnostic um, and that it could work on any rover, including one that is already up there. And we also like to say that we, we, we like to push the concept of, of software as a payload. And what we mean by that is, you know, in, in the space industry, a payload is often something that sits on a spacecraft and it kind of does the work of whatever you're trying to do on your mission. It could be a, a transponder. It could be some kind of, uh, you know, optical instrument. It could be anything. Um, and, and for Canada to participate in many international missions, it's often that Canada contributes a subsystem or a payload because we don't have the, the you know, the capacity to, to provide launch or, or to potentially the budget to provide the whole, you know, the whole mission. Well, and we do have the capability to actually sure, sure. do a mission, okay. but we just don't have the political will the, to do it. We, there you go. Thank you. That, that's a, an important distinction. Um, but a, a way that's relatively inexpensive to be involved on a mission would be the concept of, of, of software 
being a payload in and of itself and being able to, to kind of contribute to a mission without actually physical hardware that you're actually installing. Um, so we, we do push those ideas and so we do like the idea of you know uploading a software patch to a, a, an existing rover mission to increase safety you know uh, without waiting for the next launch. So that's something that, that we would like to do uh, we think is possible. Uh, we haven't obviously we haven't done that yet and, and there's obviously a lot of work that would have to go uh, between now and then to make it to make it happen but it's something that, that we would like and would be interested in doing. Um, your first question was it was a two-part question I have to go back to first what was it? Well, uh, the first question had to do with um, uh, where... Uh, right. Have they have they uh, uploaded software to right. Spirit? So for Spirit, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I don't know for sure what they, they, you know, what they changed in terms of their either uh, operational strategies or their software between when it you know, maybe first got stuck and when it finally got stuck. I, I'm not 100% sure. W- what I think is a good salient example is that, as you probably are aware, Curiosity, uh, the, the, the newer rover that's operating on Mars, has had some issues with its uh, with its aluminum wheels, they've had some some wear, and and it's fairly significant, and it's resulted in the the engineers at JPL first actually uh, changing their operational strategy, so where they choose to drive, and they're now avoiding areas with kind of hard uh, exposed bedrock that they kind of describe as being these can opener rocks that when the rover drives over it, it can almost kind of peel up a little piece of the wheel and, and create a puncture, um, which of course you know if you had enough of those, it would be potentially catastrophic if you if you lost a one whole wheel, for instance. So, and we should point out to our readers, they're not inflated tires. Correct. Yes, these are these are rigid. Uh, I think they're fully rigid. They might have some compliance, but they're aluminum wheels. And yeah. um, but what I was getting to with this is that since they've discovered this problem, that you know the first response is okay, let's drive a little bit differently. But that's a big deal because that now you're changing kind of how you're conducting your mission. This is something that you've planned for years and years, and you've designed a rover and a concept of operations around it. So you, you know, changing it's a big deal. But the, the next thing that they did was they actually worked on a soft software fix. And they have subsequently uploaded and implemented that software fix. And I find this really interesting in the sense that if you say to someone, listen, I've got a a mechanical problem with my wheels. I'm getting puncture holes in my wheels. Can you fix that with software? The answer is yes. And and you think, well, how is that possible? But it it is possible in the sense that when you think about the rate at which software systems work, um, they're able to, by monitoring telemetry from the motors, the motor controllers, they're able to understand at a very, very kind of quick, in a very quick time, that there is a situation potentially arising where the wheel could be damaged in terms of measuring the, you know, the amount of slip and the amount of motor torque required, you know, in a very short instance of time. And so then the software can kind of react and say, I think this is a problem. I, I think, the, the, you know, the wheel is pulling a little bit harder than it, than it wants to. And there's a potentially dangerous situation here. We might m- m- make a puncture. Let's stop so, things. And of course, this is happening at, you know, the millisecond kind of rate. So they're able to get feedback of sensor data, mm-hmm. and they've been analyzing that Based on that, they right. were able to create a patch, if you will, to help them navigate through this. Uh, or, or I think it's it's maybe not navigation as much as okay, you know, rather than simply sending um, a, a desired velocity to this motor and so try to you know spin so you achieve this velocity, and as it's doing that, it might continually you know amp up the current to try to to achieve that velocity, um, and and therefore potentially damage the wheel. This is a situation where maybe they. they would say, okay, well, we're seeing this current go up. That actually, it could just be getting out of a difficult situation, but it actually could be damaging the wheel. Let's limit that. Let's not let, let, ha- let that happen. And so it might mean that the rover has to stop and you have to actually back out or something. I'm not, I'm not sure how they actually implement it. So it's not a kind of a new navigation. It's just a way of actually saving the wheel uh, before the wheel gets damaged. And so it, at least it's solving that, that problem, at least in, in, a, in a sense. All right. So let's go back. Yeah. Because we got off track. Yeah, this happens. <laughs> but, but, the, but it was good. It was very interesting. Um, but going back to uh, uh, software as a payload yeah. and the autonomous soil assessment system. Okay. So you uh, are doing this under contract to the Canadian Space Agency. Uh, how long was it? Like an eighteen-month study, or yeah, originally it was I think a twenty-one-month contract. Um, there were actually some delays in in awarding the contract, uh, just because of the timing. Yeah, exactly, because of the timing of um, of of uh, the 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 last uh, election. 
Um, and so the, 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 I think we, we were, we were those about, elections, those elections, we, we were about to be awarded the contract and then, and then that everything came to, everything a, stop came to a pause for because a we had to have the elections. Yeah, right. Okay. So about three or four months went by and then, and then we were awarded it. So that, that kind of made a little bit of a delay that was, you know, nobody, nobody's fault. Well, there's an economic cost to that. Well, there, there is. And I, and I, I will admit actually that for a young company like ours, um, you know, cash flow is, is a very major consideration for me because, you know, it's the nature of our business often where we're in a position now where we don't really have a suite of, you know, products ourselves, right? So we're more in the engineering service domain for now until we build up a core, you know, a, a, a chunk of IP that we can then kind of turn into into some kind of saleable product. And while we are an engineering services company, what that means is we typically do work i.e. spend money and then invoice a customer and then get paid. And that's fine if you have, you know, a variety of customers and a steady stream of them and kind of staggered, you know, invoice times, et cetera, et cetera. And you have a little bit of a buffer through a line of credit or a loan or what have you. And then, you know, you can, you can, you can make your ends meet with cash flow. But any kind of three or four month delay, especially when you're talking about linking that to, to kind of larger milestone payments uh, with, a, with a large customer like the space agency, that that becomes a big deal. So, so for sure, I mean, we, we, it's a little harder for us to, to deal with those things, I think, than some of the bigger players in the industry. Um, but that's something that we're we're learning our way as we go and doing all right. So have there been so, subsequent contracts? Yeah, so we actually, um, we, we have uh, recently been awarded an amendment to that contract to do a little bit of follow-on work. Uh, so the work that we've done so far was, I think, very successful. Uh, we had a demonstration at the Space Agency in June where we were able to to demonstrate that we'd met the performance evaluation criteria of the project. And, and a essentially validate that the, the, the technology is a technology readiness level four. However, and just to clarify, yeah. at what level is it uh, for, for the audience? Yeah. What level do you need to reach to, to be able to be mission ready? Um, mission ready, I guess, I guess seven. I mean, you, you know, you would then be kind of putting it up in, into space and testing it out in the concept. So this of, is a scale of up to nine. That's right. That's right. Nine is is you know the the space shuttle, the space station, flight proven, everything works, and over and over. Yeah. And T and TRL one is is you know hey it's I've got idea. a beer in my hand and that seems like a pretty cool idea. So yeah. So we're 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 you know making good progress kind of along that path. Um, and but one of the things that came out of this demonstration was that the the rover platform that we were using on this phase of the contract. Um, and again, it, we we intend the technology to be and to you didn't be, provide the rover platform that correct. came from another that came from a. Contractor uh, ODG Argo that that manufactured the vehicle, and this vehicle um, actually was, was so capable that we we had difficulty finding locations that were kind of reasonable locations to drive in a mission like scenario, but where the rover would actually get stuck. And so the result was that we could kind of demonstrate. That's unusual. It is unusual, but that's that's the the, the the rover itself was very very capable, and it, you know it's a four wheel skid steer platform, and that's a configuration that is is not typical for planetary rovers, but but many people would make an argument that it's actually you know more appropriate for for, for planetary rovers uh, than than the six wheel rocker bogey design which you see as as the kind of uh, the, the the most common one and in fact the russians uh, the soviets were very successful with the lunokhod rover in, in in the 70s with the skid steer vehicle um, it's the only one that's flown that skid steer and it did very well so you know we we brought odg argo on board because you know their team peter vischer and and and, and friends were you know experts at, at rover mobility and designing rover systems and we said hey we you know we want you guys to, to provide a rover and to help us with this project and and they did a great job but almost too good in the sense that the rover didn't get that stuck much that much so w- what we've been awarded now is, is a small amendment from CSA and we're going to be field testing the rover in in an analog location where we've got kind of natural wind blowing terrain where we hopefully will encounter a situation where we can get stuck and, and then, where would this be well we're going through a trade study right now to, to decide where the best place to do that and we've got a whole bunch of locations you know earmarked and now we have to make a decision so in we can or uh, we're looking both in Canada and abroad. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that we'd like to do uh, as part of this amendment is to is to integrate the rover, uh, sorry, integrate the ASAS system on a rover that is more likely to get stuck. So that's kind of two two ways to achieve the same objective. And ultimately, what we're trying to do here is have a demonstration whereby we can show that look, here's a rover driving from A to B, and if it just drives from A to B without our ASAS technology on board, it it plans its path and it gets stuck along the way because it tries to drive up this soft soil, soft sand. And we've got ASAS running now, and look, it detects that ahead and therefore stops and therefore doesn't get in that problem. That would be a successful demonstration. And how does the software or the system integrate with the rover? I mean, uh, 
uh, obviously you have to work closely with ODG. Um, do they provide sensors that? Or so, do you provide the sensors? Some of the sensors are, are essentially uh, inherent within the rover design. So one of the sensors that we use information from would be the encoders on the motors, uh, because that gives us information about how much the motors are turning. Uh, other sensors, uh, in terms of the, the, the exteroceptive sensors kind of looking ahead of the rover, these are things that we procured uh, from other pro- providers. And we would have had a, we have a whole lot of options in terms of what sensors to use. What we tried to do uh, at this at this phase of the project was to as much as possible use sensors that also had a high technology readiness level because then we were not uh, beholden to another parallel technology development exercise. For instance, if we had some you know magical sensor that, that could do all this stuff that we needed but has not been developed yet, you know we'd be developing our software at the same time the sensor development and if, if the sensor development didn't go forward, neither could our software. So what we're, we're working with right now as our baseline is the use of stereo cameras. And the reason that we're doing that is because every rover that, that's flown on Mars recently has stereo cameras. I mean, so this is a very high TRL technology and we would expect that you know, for quite a while, all future rovers are going to have stereo cameras. Um, you know, y- using a, a LiDAR uh, kind of sensor or another sensor along those lines could also be very useful. And we have looked at that and we've done a lot of research and kind of, you know, so, into that. That might be something we do in the future. So the software is rover agnostic. Yeah. Um, so basically, um, I mean... There aren't too many opportunities to get your software on a rover going to Mars. This is true. Um, however, there are some. There appears to be that will be nearer term, let's say, opportunities on the moon. Um, how do you see this software shaping into a product that can work on a rover on the moon? That's a really great question. I we do see a, a few different concept of operations for this technology, and so one of them would be in the Martian context, where you've got a rover that's essentially operating autonomously. It's being commanded from Earth, but with the time delays being anywhere from you know eight to forty minutes uh, two way, you know it's such that you can't teleoperate. You need to let the rover do do the thinking and and do the driving itself. And so the the system, if it was on a Mars rover, would be an input to that navigation system. It would it would basically tell the navigation system, hey, I don't like that area that you've planned to, to take me through. Uh, I think we might get stuck. Let's, let's replan. But for a lunar scenario where you have the option of not having full autonomy, and you, know, you may still have full autonomy on the moon. You know, there's, there's different, I've seen different concepts of operations for different missions. But you could also have a, uh, have a system on the moon that is, is co- controlled directly from the ground. Uh, or perhaps even more likely uh, controlled by, asset, uh, by astronauts in an orbiting in spacecraft. Orbit. I mean, that's something that they're talking yeah, about. That's something that absolutely you know, the, the Europeans are talking fact, about that and, and Canadians uh, talking about that. The language that I've seen in some of the RFP documents from the Canadian Space Agency have specifically said that in support of astronauts in space, rovers on the moon, and the rovers working in concert with the, the astronauts in space. So, so we, we see this, this uh, ASAS, this concept, uh, the, the ASAS can be a tool that's very useful in that concept of operations. And what it would be there basically is, is a, another cue for the, the operator, another, another guide. So they would be looking at their you know, rover camera views and they would be you know, potentially using a joystick to drive the rover. Well, one of the things that they would see on their display would be the output from our ASAS, which is basically it would color code the terrain in front of the rover, you know, basically red, yellow, or green. And if it was green, that would be us selling the, the user, hey, we think you're fine to drive here. So um, astronauts are expensive. Yes. So I'm thinking that part of the scenario is the rover will be programmed to go do whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it reaches a point where it says, got an issue, at that point it sort of sends a text to the astronaut in orbit and says, I need you to look at this and make a decision as to which option I should take. If it reaches a limit that it can't decide on its own. Yeah, yeah, I think that's very reasonable. And that's kind of like what happens right now with, with Curiosity is that they'll send up a command in the morning and say, all right, go here. And then, you know, they'll find out whatever, whatever that is hours later that, yeah, it made it or didn't. And maybe it didn't because it didn't like something along the way. And so it stopped and wanted, you know, new input. And so that could be the same here in this context. But of course, uh, the uh, time difference, the little lag is... Especially if you're in orbit around the moon, this is going to be negligible. Right. It's exactly as compared to the Mars. It, absolutely, absolutely. And so you could, you know, in that case, you, you have the ability to, like I said, control it real time through teleoperation. In which case, then this input is 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 again just like other, another other input or cue that you would have. 
All right, so let's think bigger picture. So let's take it beyond what it is right now, and because there's a lot of people interested in this, and in theory, eventually, or in theory, it could happen, which is mining on the moon. Yep. You guys thinking about that as you develop this? Absolutely. I, I mean, I think that, that that there's very real potential for for asteroid mining and, and I mean, lunar mining. There was a good moon, movie a few years ago called I think it was just called Moon. Yeah. And where you know the guy was turns out he was a clone. <laughs> yeah. And but you know you had the the, the autonomous uh, the big uh, yeah looked yeah like the, the the big caterpillar type trucks uh, on the moon doing the work and uh, you know if there ever was an issue then it would send back the the, the you know uh, the problem and then then it would get fixed by the absolutely I mean I, I definitely see any any planetary vehicle would be I think a target for us as terms of being a potential customer for our technologies and and I say you know our technologies I mean ASAS uh, yes but also some of our path planning algorithms and some of our our optimization stuff that we do um, I mean fu- fundamentally all our systems you know leverage the latest technology in terms of you know machine learning and things like that and so we can provide a lot of value uh, over and above you know Know, a system that's just kind of planning a path from A to B, um, and so I think that you know that and that applies to an explore, exploration mission. So a space agency saying, "Hey, we're going to send a rover up to this body because we want to do some science," but that also applies to the next thing that's going to come, which is, like you say, commercial activities. And and you know certainly lunar commercial activities would be you know right in our wheelhouse and a high priority for us. But I would also say you know there's certainly a large potential for spin-off to terrestrial applications. And when you think about it, uh, a planetary rover is really just an autonomous vehicle that happens to be in space. And as you know, you know, the trends that we're seeing in autonomous vehicles are, are such that you know, they're essentially going to fully take over in, in some amount of time. And I don't know exactly how soon that is, but right now already vehicles are licensed to operate autonomously in certain places, um, you know, certain places in the U.S. already, you know, big rigs can, can drive down the street fully autonomously. And as more and more vehicles become automated, there's going to be more and more need for technologies such as ours, which can bring value in scenarios that are non-typical. So, so are you actually at this stage uh, examining ways to take this initial product and use it in the terrestrial application? I would say yes and no. Yes, in the sense that we're continually looking at when we work on something, how it can be adapted and what design choices we make now, how they would affect that future adaptation later. So if we make a decision that, that requires something to happen at a certain you know, speed or frequency, if that limits us for a vehicle that's traveling at a different speed in the future, then we, you know, we think about that now. So we're always looking at that. Um, that said, you know, we don't, there's, there's, we're not as, it's not as big a part of our, 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 our business right now in terms of our R&D, in terms of our spending, in terms of a, a focus on, on terrestrial stuff. Um, so, yeah, that actually brings me to another question. Two-year-old company, how many people working in the company? It's a good question too, and it's one that I can't just answer right off the bat because it's it's um, it's it's a little bit tricky. Uh, there are 15 faces on our website. Um, some of these faces are really more just advisors, um, individuals that, for whatever situation, whatever uh, in their individual circumstances are, they're not you know engaged full time elsewhere. Uh, in, in in some cases, they're retired actually, and and willing to help out, kind of lending lend a handing um, a hand to us, and and you know provide some. Uh, of, of the fruit from their long experience. Um, in terms of actually individuals kind of on the payroll on a regular basis making a, a regular contribution, uh, there are 11. Um, and and of those 11, I think seven are full-time and four are part-time. So um, not content working just on the autonomous soil assessment system, you do have another ongoing project. So... Um, can you tell me a little bit about that, which is your um, uh, mission? What is it? We've got a few things. Mission yeah. Control Academy. Yeah. So, so the Mission Control Academy. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about that and why that, as opposed to not focusing everything on 
ASAS. Sure. So uh, let me take a little bit of a step back first, because I and maybe I it's because I, I maybe failed in the first question about describing the company. But we, we do wear a few different hats in the sense that we are primarily a technology development company, and and that's our, our kind of raison d'etre. We we want to put technology in space. We want to design stuff and, and put it in space. Um, so that's our goal. That's our focus. But we we also do a couple other things. One of the things is we do a little bit of consulting, because that can be a way to pay the bills. Um, um, and we like to be involved in as many different space projects as we can. We can bring a lot of value to another company if, for instance, they aren't used to working in the space industry and they want to bring their technology into space or they need some help kind of adapting a technology for a different application, things like that. So we do have an active consulting business that also generates revenue, although it is is the smallest part of our company. And, and then, who would you work with on that? Uh, anybody we know? Um, Can you say? <laughs> uh, other other companies in Canada who 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 need help um, or who who can benefit from the value we provide uh, by leveraging our space experience when they have more limited experience in the space domain. Um, and then the third part of our company, which I think, yeah, it's really exciting. Um, I, I think it's, it's it's a lot of fun. Is is our Mission Control Academy, and so this is basically a, a, an educational uh, product. Almost, it's almost the point where it, where it is actually a product, and. I guess I'd like to talk about this by providing some context. And so this is something that many people would say, well, hold on, you know, you're a technology company. Why are you doing education? You know, you, you need to have a focus. If you start getting distracted, you're not going to be able to do anything right. That would have been my, one of my and questions. Again, that's what many people say. And w- what I say is that, well, you know, our core f- competency, our focus is developing technologies for rovers that help them navigate more safely, more efficiently. We use machine learning. We're doing kind of operations strategies and systems, things like that. So what it means is that our engineers are out in the field on a day-to-day basis with a rover prototype operating that rover in the context of a mission-like scenario uh, to, you know, and, and, and using all the things that go along with that. And so really what we what we've done with this educational program is we've created an educational um, product that does all those same things. And so it's actually a very nice complement to what we're doing on the engineering side. And this actually stemmed out of something that um, started as a business development activity uh, between us and a few other companies in the industry working with the International Space University to give their students, uh, their participants, some further information about about rovers and to teach them about rovers. And so we partnered with the Canadian Space Agency and there was a bunch of companies involved. ODG was one of them, NEPTEC was one of them. And we 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 let the students operate a planetary rover in the context of a Mars mission simulation. In in to in order them to learn to enable them to learn about space, you know, science, technology, engineering and math, but also kind of learn teamwork, communications, things like that. And as we continued to do that, we realized that there was an opportunity to kind of adapt that into a a regular learning product and then apply it across a wider range of students. And so to that end, we we basically formulated the Mission Control Academy. And this past summer, we were able to run four sets of missions with students ranging in ages from 12 all the way up to postgraduate level. And those four sets of missions had the students controlling a rover at the Canadian Space Agency Mars Yard in Montreal from four different continents. So they were in four different continents while they operated the rover at, at the Mars Yard at CSA. And and the outcomes that they how get... Did, how did these teams get involved? Um, yeah, so through, well, basically through our, our, our kind of business development activities and networking and things like that. And again, this is, I would kind of describe this as a bit, a prototype release. So this summer was kind of our, our you know, beta release kind of prototype. And the idea is that we're going to, you know, develop some further partnerships and be ready to deploy this either next year or the year after in, in a much larger rollout where we give access to many, many more schools and then So this students. was self-funded? Um, it was some self-funded uh, investment uh, as a, you know, an investment into the technology, um, but it's also a revenue generating um, division for our company. And so we have schools, uh, universities and schools paying oh, for so this service. to be yes. a part of this? Yes. Okay, so it's part of the learning experience for, for them. Uh, absolutely. Uh, is it part of an actual curriculum or is it just a... We, we've got a variety. And so, w- w- again, what part of the reason uh, uh, the, the plan for us to do it this summer was to be able to validate the different, I guess I won't say business models, but different customer uh, 
segments. And so we had a group uh, that was here in Ottawa and that was led, it was done through Ashbury College. So Ashbury Collegiate runs summer camp. So they ran a summer camp here in Ottawa for students age 12 to 15. And the focus of the camp, basically they procured from us was this Mission Control Academy. So they had a, a typical camp like they would run. They have a, an instructor and they have the students register for them. And then what they get from us is the opportunity to get... I to, never had that as a kid. No. Now that that I bet you did. cool. It was cool. And they it actually culminated with a, a, a bus trip to Montreal where they actually went to the same control center that the that the operators, the rover operators at CSA would use. And they operated the rover from that control center out in the Mars yard. So that was one example. Um, we also had students at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. They were all engaged in a master's program in space studies and this was offered um, as the main content of a short course that that was for credit and so the way that their program is set up they have kind of these recurring short courses that are intensive over a couple weeks so uh, with that one in particular yeah um, as far as you as far as your company is concerned, what is the, the deliverable in that? I mean, what, what are the students actually doing during that short course to learn? And, and So it's, it's actually fairly involved. Um, I think if you just kind of get a quick look at it, you think, oh, they get to drive the rover. That's fun. Sure, and that is fun. Um, everyone would like to, to drive a rover, but there's not much to that. That's not educational, and there's no value there, I, I don't think. And so what we do is, is a much more immersive uh, uh, program. And what we really try to do is to replicate, to some degree, the process that a space agency or a private company would go through when they conceive of, design, and launch a spacecraft. And so we start off by giving background information in the, in the form of lectures and, and hands-on activities to teach the students about planetary science, about rover systems design, and using that information, we then take them through what is essentially a kind of phase A, B, C, D of, of, a, of, a, of a flight program. So we, we ask them to, we, we give them a high-level mission statement, which is to operate a planetary rover on the surface of Mars in order to find signs of past or present life, something along those lines. But beyond that high-level statement, we say, we're going to let you decide your own objectives. So they, based on what they've learned about planetary science, they come up with some specific objectives. We want to look for methane or we want to, you know, whatever it might be. And then after they've done that, they also define their whole team organizational structure. They define what roles they're going to have during the mission. Uh, Then they decide where they're going to navigate. So we give them a high-level digital elevation model of the local terrain, and we say the rover is going to land in a lander somewhere here. And this is rough, you know, this it replicates the um, the data that they would get from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. So it's kind of, you know, not super high high resolution, but high enough that they can plan a path. So they plan a path, and now they know kind of roughly what they want to do scientifically. And they know roughly where they're going to go to do that. Now we, we let them use this tool that we've created, which allows them to do some concurrent engineering design and actually configure the rover or design the rover that they want to use. And in reality, we use the same rover all the time. But what... But what they get is a subset of the different sensors or functionalities or capabilities on that rover because, of course, in reality, in a real life, there's not an unlimited budget. You know, no one has $50 billion to spend on a mission. Now, you know, Curiosity cost $2.5 billion and, and it was budgeted for $1.5 and it got a lot of bells and whistles, let's be honest. But it didn't have everything and, it's, you know, it didn't have a drone. Mars 2020 is going to have a drone. That's, that's pretty cool. So – you know, what the students do is they go through this exercise, they have to make make trade-off decisions based on mass, power, cost, and bandwidth, and then they come up with this rover design. And so they've actually really become engaged in our kind of, um, you know, it's not just kind of sit down and drive the rover, it's sit down and operate the rover you know, the rover you designed, um, uh, conducting the mission that you designed in, in, you know, working as a team in the way that you defined your team roles and communicating the way you want to do that and, and all those things. And, and how long is the course? So the course, it, it depends. We, we, because we've had, you know, different scenarios this summer, we've had to adapt it a little bit. Uh, typically it, it's, it's, you know, somewhere between kind of two and five preliminary learning sessions, which are anywhere from a couple hours to, you know, even a day. Um, and that kind of gives them the, the fundamentals to learn the material and then there's this this mission planning session where they they do the rover design and then there's the actual mission and those range as well um, we, we shortened it down to two hours for the younger students um, but we've gone all the way up to four hours for for older students and during that mission execution the the students are kind of 
you know, not actually locked, but but kind of closed, sequestered in a room that that is the, the scenario we've developed for them is that this room is a spacecraft, and they are en route to Mars, and they are controlling this this rover on the surface, trying to decide if that's where they should land when they get there. And so the idea is that they're almost to Mars, but not quite, and that results in a in an eight minute uh, two way communication delay between. Uh, us as ground controllers, we act as ground controllers and the students in their spacecraft, and then a, a very short few second delay between them and the rover. But of course, that makes makes teleoperation feasible, but challenging. And so again, that that provides a lot of value during the the actual mission itself. So where else were you? Uh, you, you mentioned uh, locally. You mentioned South Africa. Where else did you do it? The other two uh, groups were were in uh, Israel and in Ireland. Ireland was that part of the Ireland space this year university? was part of this year's space studies program from the International Space University. And with Israel, was Israel, that part of Technion or was that? Uh, no, it was not. It was um, the Davidson Institute, which is part of uh, Weizmann Academy. And so it was a group of um, uh, high-achieving uh, young space students, uh, kind of 15, 16 years old, who had registered for this kind of uh, future astronaut program uh, that was funded by the, the Israeli Space Agency. So, at this stage of your company, you basically have. Two products and a service. The service being the consulting, mm-hmm. uh, and the products being the ASAS development, uh, and I suppose that's going to lead to uh, further development in other products, uh, and of course the uh, Mission uh, Control uh, Academy. Uh, where is the, the academy going? You, you alluded to that earlier. So what we're really trying to do is is get to a point where many, many, many schools all over the world, I mean, all over Canada for sure, for sure that's our priority, but all over the world as well, can, can take advantage of this opportunity. And so what that means is we need to get down to the right price point. Uh, right now, it's, it's, it, our costs are too high uh, for it, this to be uh, achievable or, or, or within the scope of many, many schools. And and just to be clear, you know, this is something that, you know, we're a for-profit company, but this Mission Control Academy, this is not something that we see as, as what's going to drive our revenue streams for the long term. I mean, this is not about making money. This is about being a really good parallel to what we do um, on the technology side and something we really love to do and something that gives us lots of great exposure. But that said... It's we, also great... We, in terms of educating well, 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 I mean, absolutely. That is the you know, main the goal. I just, you know, but absolutely. And that's the, that's the priority. That's what we want to do. And But all that to say is, you know, we also can't, you know, continually lose money on it, right? So we need to find a way to bring in revenue um, that covers our costs and, and, you know, that keeps us happy. And so to do that, we've, we've come up with a fairly comprehensive strategy that will allow us to have a facility that we can use and, and kind of the right partners in place and, and develop the technology required whereby a student in Iqaluit or a teacher in Iqaluit can go to our website, click that they want to buy a, buy a mission, they do that, instantly they're able to download all the, the, the background material that they can use to teach their students because you know, we acknowledge that they're probably not a space expert and some of the value that, that this program offers is that they're kind of taught by us. We're space experts. This is, this is great. So they would get all that great you know, videos and handouts and presentations all from us, that content. And then also, you know, again, with the click of a mouse um, uh, you know, on our website, they would be able to turn their computer in that classroom in Iqaluit into a rover control center computer. And they would be able to seamlessly turn their whole classroom into basically a full mission control center and, and operate the rover, run the mission from that classroom. So you mentioned that you um, partnered with the CSA on this this summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that a collaboration that's going to keep going and grow, perhaps? I mean, obviously, we'd, be, we'd very much like to continue our ongoing work with CSA in, in many fronts, um, and they've been great partners on this. Um, what they have contributed so far is that we've had a collaboration agreement in place, uh, which allows us access to their Mars yard and some of their other hardware and, and facilities, and their team supports that. And it's a, it's a fairly big undertaking, and so many people at CSA are fairly involved to, to be able to make this happen. Now, that said... Um, it would also be excellent if there was funding mechanisms for space education and outreach, which we could leverage to support this kind of activity. And unfortunately, I think the reality right now within the CSA is that these mechanisms don't exist. They used to, but they got zeroed out in a budget many six, seven years ago. And although I and I did speak with uh, the president of the Canadian Space Agency, Sylvain Lapalte, in a previous podcast, and he did say that they are working internally to take little bits here and there to 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 work on the the education and public outreach 
but hopefully the government will realize that you know this is an important thing and, and actually fund again what it used to fund, which is an educational portion of it. Because uh, absolutely, it well, makes I mean, I, no sense to to have a Canadian space agency without a public uh, uh, and I, outreach uh, funding mechanism. I think almost everyone agrees with you on that, and I think while we all understand that in Canada education is a provincial mandate, uh, most people would agree that that the space agency has has a responsibility to do certain amount of education and outreach, even though it's a provincial mandate. Uh, in, in the U.S., NASA is mandated. To well, they have a location spend, in every state for that exact express purpose. But they're also mandated within their budget to spend, I think it's, I, I don't know the exact percentage, it's a small percentage, but they have to spend a percentage of their budget yeah. on educational activities. But what I will say is I think at CSA is, think, things are changing, I'd say, within the federal government. And I think all along CSA has kind of felt this way as well. And we're seeing some very strong signals coming out of CSA. Uh, as you'll probably be aware, several of the RFPs, maybe even all the RFPs that have come out recently have put clauses in that that basically mandate the use of students, um, the use of the the the, um, the that, that allow students to be exposed to what's going on in the project. So that's that's a great sign right there. And and I think you know anybody that I've talked to at CSA about Mission Control Academy and what we're trying to do across the board, they say this is a great idea. We love this. We'd love to help you. And the unfortunate reality is right now that they they, they kind of can't directly. But but we're hoping that in the future they can. And and I think this is the kind of thing that would fit very well into you know a future program if, if there was an opportunity for us to pursue funding through through them so going back to ASAS for a second because I I, I, I I had a question which I, I omitted to ask okay. so um, obviously you're developing uh, IP um, are you protecting it uh, are you going out there and filing patents or is it uh, certainly we're protecting it. I, I think it's it's bold upon any company to protect the IP they develop, and if they don't, they're Not everybody believes silly. in patents. Correct. And so, uh, you know, I think I, I say IP, you know, meaning intellectual property, and that means many, many things. And, you know, keeping a trade secret is just as viable and legitimate a way to maintain your intellectual property as getting a patent, which is, you know, tantamount to telling everyone in the world exactly what you're doing, yeah. but then saying no one else can use it. And, you know, and, and we've seen that that, that can work, but we've also seen that it, it doesn't work. There's countries in this world that are just quite happy to violate I think the, those the, the biggest patents. example that I've heard from the space perspective is SpaceX saying we're not going to file, uh, although they may have, but we're not going to file patents because somebody, a foreign actor, right. will come in and just ignore it and take the technology. Exactly, exactly. So that, that's a risk. Um, another consideration for a small company like ours is the time and cost associated with patents and the application. So it's non-trivial um, and, and something that you know, needs to kind of factor into your decision there. Um, and so I guess all that to say is, is we're doing what we believe is the right thing to do to protect our intellectual property right now, and we're going to continue to do that. And that strategy will evolve as time goes by based on what our needs and, and resources are and, um, and, you know, the specific situation. So do you have any new initiatives upcoming? Yeah, actually, Mark. So we, we've fairly recently started a new uh, collaboration with the Canadian Space Agency. Uh, so this is under the CSA's Space Technology Development Program Grants and Contribution Program, whereby companies and industry are allowed to define a project that they want to invest in uh, because they believe it has commercial potential. And if they can convince the space agency that 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 there's a, you know that that is the case, there is potential here. The, the space agency will fund a certain portion of those costs. And so we applied for that for this program uh, in. in the past and, and were re- fairly recently awarded a contract that, that started a few months ago now. And this contract um, or this, this sorry, this, um, this contribution agreement from the CSA. Uh, so this project is, um, we're calling it skid steer optimization. And what it is, is it, it's uh, path planning algorithms for skid steer vehicles optimized for energy consumption. And so what we're trying to do is to use optimization and, and, and learning techniques to improve the energy efficiency of pathfinding algorithms. So right now, for the most part, you know, a, a, a rover or, or even a terrestrial autonomous vehicle can navigate from point A to point B using a variety of different technologies and mechanisms. And most part, people are looking at, you know, researchers are looking at how to get from A to B and how to get as close to B as possible and, and you know, how to get there safely. Very few people are looking into optimizing the traverse to minimize something. In this case, we're looking mostly at energy, but you could also look at time, you could look at safety, you could look at other things that you're trying to optimize. Uh, it should be pointed out that um, spacecraft 
rovers uh, don't have unlimited energy. Absolutely. And energy is uh, factored into every single equation of yeah. what the mission is. So, so yeah, we think there's a very you know compelling value proposition here for the the use case of a rover. And again, you could think of a if if I were to pick a scenario, say you've got a rover, and the idea is that you want to drive this rover into a permanently shadowed region of the moon so that you can uh, prospect for water volatiles, uh, water ice. That, that's a mission that people are talking about that, that might happen, right? So that's a very reasonable kind of context. If you've got a battery that's powering your rover and it's going into a permanently shadowed region, it's not getting any solar energy generation or energy collection. So what you need to do is you need to use all the battery the power in your batteries. And the size of your battery is going to then dictate the amount of power you have available. And the, the size of your batteries is going to you know dictate the amount of mass and therefore cost on launch. And so if you can find a way to save energy while you're operating that permanently shadowed crater, yeah, or region, you're, you're certainly creating a value proposition. And so what we're trying to do is to, again, take path planning algorithms and optimize them. And so again, the path planning is not new. That's not groundbreaking. Anybody, not anybody, many people can do that. What we're going to try to do is say that we're going to save you, you know, whatever, one, two, five percent, some number of ener- of your energy uh, while you get from A to B. And we think that that can be, create a lot of value for the cost of the, of the system. And it's one that we're very excited about because we actually, we really see there being potential for commercial uh, spin-offs in terrestrial applications. Because again, as I spoke about earlier, with this trend towards vehicles becoming automated, as more and more vehicles, especially of different types of vehicles, become automated, um, you might think of an example of a, of a big vehicle in a mine kind of going back and forth from A to B lots of times, but yet not always going in the same route because the ter- terrain is changing or, or, or B is a slightly different place. And so it always has to plan a new path as it's going there autonomously. And if I could say to the operator of that mine that, hey, for each one of your trucks, you know, I can save you 3% of your power and you've got this many trucks and they're operating 24 hours a day and you've got this many trucks in this many mines across the world and suddenly it becomes, again, a compelling proposition. So that, that's the thinking behind the, the research and so far it's, it's going quite well and we've had a couple phases of testing so far and, and, and things look good. And again, it, it's only, you know, fairly new. But it's like a grant, right? It's a grant. Yeah, How right. long is... Uh, we're supposed to wrap up at the end of this, uh, this calendar year. Calendar year. Yeah. Okay. We started about the beginning of this calendar year. And hopefully this leads to... Yeah, well, again, it, this would hopefully lead to um, future opportunities in this in this regard. And, and I think ultimately what it's doing is it's serving to to build up our, our kind of product office offering at this this niche core competency, which which we're focusing on, which is, again, control of of, of robotic vehicles, whether it be autonomous control or, or operator tools. Um, but but, you know, using things like machine learning and optimization to make those those uh, tools and, and those um, controlling algorithms better. Okay, last question. This is a fun one. Okay. Got nothing to do with, with your business. Star Trek or Star Wars? Goodness, um, it, it's a fun one, and it's it's going to be not the answer you expected. So, um, Babylon Five? No, I. So I'm. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a little anecdote about myself that's totally unrelated to to, to space and work. I, I love reading. I love books. Uh, I come from a family that's very literary. That's um, how I got interested in this. Robert yeah, Heinlein. There you go. So I, I love books. I love reading. I read all the time. Uh, I work in space exploration, science, technology, and yet I hate science fiction. Really? If you put those two things together, science, and I love science and I love fiction. You put it together, science fiction, I hate it. I can't read it. Don't touch it. So I don't do Star Trek. I don't do Star Wars. I don't watch those movies. I don't read those books. That's not my thing at all. Interesting. Yeah. That's the uh, first time I know. I've I'm, heard an, I'm that. an anomaly. And I, I go all around the world to space events and you know, Space University and the International Astronomical Congress, all these different things, and, and continually am and, you know, inundated with questions about, well, what about the Martian this or things that, and I have to kind of look people blankly and say, sorry, but, you know, I was reading Tolstoy, not not um, not uh, Philip K. Dick. All right. Well, I'd like to thank uh, Ewan for being my guest today. Uh, I hope you'll consider being on a, on a future show. Absolutely. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Q Podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. 
You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space, and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook at the SpaceQ. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn at Mark K. Boucher, and if we're connected, you'll get SpaceQ articles and the podcast notification in your newsfeed. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider rating the show and writing a review if you're so inclined. Thank you.